0: Welcome, everybody. Thank you very much for staying on after the end of um, all the compulsory stuff today. This is an optional extra, but we're delighted that you're here. Um, I'd like to introduce Dr. Charlotte Evans, who um, did the MSc. When did you finish, Charlotte? When did I finish or when did I graduate? Well, that's that's (laughs) another story. mm. Submitted in 2017. 2017. Okay, so five years ago. And um, I had the pleasure of supervising um, Charlotte. So, I, I will let <laughs> talk about what went on. So um, yeah, so I um, sorry, I am a serving member of Her Majesty's Royal Navy. I am back at the University of Oxford as a, uh, a, a academic visitor. I think is the technical term. Um, but there is a uh, there's the Guy Hudson uh, Memorial Trust, who um, sponsored two serving Royal Navy officers to come to Oxford at any one time. Um, to uh, be members of the academic community and do research on a service-related topic. Uh, this is not it. <laughs> um, so this is the research that I conducted um, uh, on uh, while I was kind of sat in your chairs in the uh, mass evidence-based healthcare. Vividly remember this module because <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that's where we came up with this idea. Because I didn't have it beforehand. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, when I arrived on Monday, didn't have the idea by the Friday. Um, um, we'd, um, I think with yourself actually <laughs> right from the beginning, um, we'd, we'd worked out um, we'd more or less that this is what I was going to do. Um, so, Lil, um, so what, what are we going to do? Uh, I haven't got a clicker, so apologies, I'm going to be sort is of... This um, is there, oh, fabulous. You? Cool. So, um, I'm going to talk to you about where the research idea came from. As you can probably hear, I did not arrive with a pre-designed pre, uh, project talk about what we did to um, answer the research question, the um, somewhat uh, tortuous process that was gaining approval to do the study, having had the good idea, um, and uh, um, what we what we found when we did the research, but then um, also about what happened um, next. So I am a consultant psychiatrist, so a medical doctor um, wh- who specialises in mental health, I was in my higher psychiatry training as a general adult psychiatrist when I started um, um, Started my Masters um, and I had one child <laughs> um, um, and I was working full time so I did my Masters over three years alongside um, clinical work uh, and, and shift work um, within the NHS and then subsequently working specifically for the Royal Navy, they were sponsoring my, my training uh, and I've been in the Navy 20 years <laughs> uh, so uh, so I mean technology. So two big caveats: um, this research has not been published or exposed to robust peer review, but it has been through a relatively robust <laughs> process <laughs> to, become <laughs> to become a <laughs> dissertation to become a dissertation. One of the things that I am here to do is actually write this study up for some kind of publication. Um, While I'm uh, over the next, um, well, now that we're uh, now it's March, over the next nine months, it was 12 months. um, Everything I'm going to say, these are the opinions of me, as in Charlotte Evans, um, not the Royal Navy or the UK Ministry of Defence, which I need to be very clear about there. Um, Hence the fact that, for example, the slides are not branded. Um, So, who am I? As I said, I'm a practicing uh, Royal Navy psychiatrist. Um, I was, you know, literally doing clinical work until pretty much, well, kind of slightly overlapped with uh, arriving here in January. Um, I'm also happened to be married. I now have two children, um, and we live down in live down in Portsmouth. So um, I've combined, you know, both my uh, uh, clinical work in the NHS and the military, um, along with um, the academic study, and well, I'm back here again. <laughs> So, um So the research idea essentially is what my patients needed and I didn't know and it came from two patients that had sat down with me um, independently um, and essentially these roughy tufty military men had sat down uh, sat down sort of you know, in my consulting room and it probably burst into tears. And that's not something that is culturally acceptable, shall we say, uh, in the world in which I work. And essentially for both of these individuals, there were only two outcomes from having sat down in a room with me. And this was before I think I'd even introduced myself, so I try not to take it personally. Um, if they had a mental health problem, either I had a padded cell and I was going to be throwing them in it in the next 10 minutes, which I don't have, I work in community mental health, <sighs> All right? Um, or that was the end of their career, that was it. The fact that they had just sat down in the room with me was it. Now I cannot imagine to put myself in their shoes how bad things had to be for them for those two outcomes to to, to make it worthwhile coming and sitting down with me. You know, you've got to be pretty sick. You've got to be, you know, the, the, the amount that you're struggling, the amount that the you know, the impact it's having on you and those around you, to do that, to brave those outcomes was pretty significant. And the thing that I suddenly realised was that I had nothing to prove or disprove in terms of research, in terms of evidence. Their assumptions that those were the only two things that could happen. Now, I'd worked in military mental health um, for a, you know for a few years by this point, and instinctively I knew that they were wrong. You know, I knew that we got people better. I knew that people's careers recovered, and I knew that we had a big problem that people then recovered, got on with their careers, and never spoke about it again. All right, we didn't have, and we still don't really have. Um, some of the role models that we need within the armed forces who have been through that you know who have had mental health problems been through the treatment process and, and they and their careers have come out the other side um, that is changing unfortunately it is not so much changing for officers it is changing for um for particularly for senior ncos and particularly interesting for those who've got deployment experience in Iraq and afghanistan it is, it is much more acceptable for people to be able to to whom have deployed to be able to access mental health care, because there is an automatic assumption that it is their warriors' deployments that is the reason why they've needed to seek mental health care. It is much more difficult, particularly for those in the Navy, who probably didn't, if they did go out to Iraq and Afghanistan, probably didn't go into a traditional role, sort of, you know, closing and killing the enemy type role, it's much more difficult for them to seek um, mental health care. So, what did we do? And this, I remember, Um, and I remember very, I had quite a clear mind having decided that this was the research question I wanted to answer. What did happen to the careers of serving UK Armed Forces personnel after a period of mental health treatment? So after they had been that person sat in the chair with a mental health professional, what happened to their career next? Okay, that's what I I wanted to, to find out. That's what my patients needed to know. So they could make that decision. Was it worth it? You know, because I, from my point of view, from my own experience, those assumptions that it was either a padded cell or, you know, different employment weren't right, but I didn't have the that I didn't have anything to back that up other than what, what I then came to know was called anecdata. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good start, it's all right? You've got to start somewhere. is fine to start off with. So I knew that there was a uh, a national database of clinical records for, um, for military mental health patients, um, which could be accessed nationally. Um, and so we already had the information recorded about what happened to these patients. We already, it was already, you know there, it wasn't necessarily new data. The question is, how did we legally and ethically access that? Right, and how do we do that in a meaningful way so that we could get something close to the answer that I was looking at for the, for the patients? So, we came up with a closed cohort study. So, closed because once you were in, you were in, and if you were out, you weren't coming in later. Okay? It was retrospectively incepted. So, we looked back um, and the how far we looked back kept changing because the amount of time it took to go through, get the approvals. Okay, um, So we set a period of time and what we looked at is the, um, all of the um, people who were assessed in three outpatient departments of um, community mental health, so military outpatient departments of community mental health over a six month period. So everyone who was assessed. The reason why we chose three different departments was because we've got three civil services: so one RAF, one Army, and one Navy. Although all three of them see people from all three services, so so the country is kind of carved up from a geographical basis. And but we know that you know most of the Navy are in the vicinity of Portsmouth. You know, if you're in the vicinity of kind of Bristol, it's probably more RAF. And then if you're somewhere near Salisbury Plain, then it's probably more Army. Okay. Um, but you know, each of those three places, we'll see people from all three services. So it was retrospectively incepted. We weren't doing prospective recruiting, We weren't starting at zero and then going right from this point onwards. We went back to a time that a point that had already happened and included the patients then from from the point zero that had already happened. But it was prospectively analysed. So we imagined that we had gone back in time and were looking at these patients. Um, and progress from the beginning moving forwards. And as I say, no one extra came in, no one came out. Although there were some people that went out and back in again, if that makes sense. So they were assessed more than once over the time of the study. Not many, but you'll see that later. And it was multi-centre. And actually, the initial study design wasn't intending to get a nationally representative sample. We wanted kind of a reasonable sample. But me being a singleton researcher, doing it on top of a clinical job, we were we had to be slightly pragmatic about what was actually going to be capable within the time within the resources available. Um, um, But actually what we ended up with was nationally representative on basic demographics. Um, We ended up sampling ten percent of of military mental health patients who were assessed in 2011. So pre-existing clinical records, um, three military departments of community mental health over six months and we generated an anonymised research data set from the electronic notes but the scrutiny was done by clinicians within the departments. So these were people with a legitimate relationship with the care that had been given. They weren't outside researchers, they weren't anyone anyone different. And in fact, we went backwards and forwards and forwards and backwards, and to the university and to the MOD and somewhere else, I'm sure, in, 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 uh, and to the Institute of Naval Medicine and, and, and back around and round again. Um, the Ministry of Defence, um, I hope quite rightly, have learned some lessons from doing slightly... Um, Cavalier research on the people within the UK Armed Forces um, and have very, very stringent rules about any research that is conducted on serving military personnel, both in terms of what is conducted, who does it, how it's consented, etc. etc. They therefore have three criteria of any studies. One is research, okay, which is hypothesis testing, hypothesis generating, and publishable. That's the kind of highest level. It's the highest standard. It's the highest Mm -hmm. level of scrutiny. The next level um, um, uh, from that is service evaluation. Okay, so it's looking at what is already being done, is it any good? Um, And then the level below that is then audit, accepted national standards, and just a simple, does it measure up or not? Does it measure up or not? Um, Now, what we were looking to do fell absolutely beautifully on the dividing line between service evaluation and ethics uh, and, and, and research beautifully on the dividing line okay which is why we went backwards forwards in with was round and round and back um the university were very clear that this was service evaluation this was care that had already been given there was no interference with you know interference with the patient the records already existed this didn't need full university ethical approval. Myself as a military clinician had a legitimate relationship with the record to generate an anonymised data set which is what the research would be conducted on. The MOD wanted more reassurance than that. They wanted to know that they had a full legal and ethical framework because individual patient consent wasn't being sought. Now that automatically feels a bit kind of, you know, sort of, is a bit of a jolt, isn't it? Hang on a minute, people's records are being distributed. tonight, they don't necessarily know who it is doing it and why it was being done. There are a number of factors that went into that decision, okay? One of them was, one of the things we wanted to do was include people who had left the MOD. And once you've left the MOD, the MOD don't know where you go. So getting consent from those patients becomes essentially impossible unless you want to go via financial records. Seriously, the only people that people let know when they leave the military is they don't want to be found as the pension people. That's it. You know, that's the, you know. um, and that was going to seriously skew the research. If we weren't able to look at the records of people who had left the military for whatever reason, that was going to seriously skew what we were looking at. The other one was there was potential harm from going and getting individual patient consent. Mm. There was potential harm from doing that. We're talking about mental health care that had finished sometimes, either had finished sometimes previously or was ongoing. Um, So you got, you know, so there were risks of a skewed sample. There were risks of actually causing distress, causing harm by going back to ask for it for ask for individual patient permission. And the only people accessing the record were clinicians who had a legitimate reason to access patient care records within their own departments to look at to look at the care that was being given within their departments. Does that make sense? The only thing that I as a researcher got was an anonymized data set that was completely untraceable back to the record. There was no way that I could link what I was given as a researcher back to any patient record, even if I recognized that you know, even if it was a patient that I would looked after and I recognised, the story, I couldn't, I couldn't have done it okay. completely, um, completely anonymised. Um, so that that was that was one of the reasons why. Um, and we had a particularly, I don't know what right adjective is actually about our experience um, of physically going to the uh, MOD Research Ethics Committee. And we had to go through, I, I think the Ministry of Magic entrance mm. is probably the best description. <laughs> you know, going to ethics committee meetings is a little bit nerve-wracking anyway, mm. isn't it, Suzanne? Yes. We've been to some together. Going with Charlotte to the Ministry of Defence was absolutely blimmy terrifying. In Whitehall, going through the airlocks to get into the building, like, So literally like you know, the Harry Potter kind of entrance hall with the Ministry yeah. of Magic and they go through the fireplaces. We were going through airlocks that was very similar to that in this great big uh, this great big room, yeah. um, and then once we got there, we were when we got into the committee room, big, sh- very shiny very big. table, all of the ethics committee at one end, us at the exact other end <laughs> of this long thin table <laughs> sat there. was we so far away.
1: Yeah, they were literally. We were <laughs> literally like, hello,
0: <laughs> hello, um, and. Um, I, th- I think, and, and unfortunately, they weren't terribly supportive when we first sat down, were they? No. Um, <laughs> basically, which was um, slightly upsetting. We'd been through a considerable process with the um, War Navy so- uh, Scientific Advisory Committee to even to be able to get to the Ethics Committee. So um, lots of scrutiny of the methodology, lots of scrutiny of the, the, the ethical considerations and this this kind of, again, this borderline of... of um, Uh, research versus versus service evaluation Um, and and we'd always been told you know if you get through all of that and this had taken a considerable period of time get through all of that you'll be fine at ethics committee and they literally sat down and went we're not sure what legal basis you have to do this that was that opening literally that opening thing Um, we just I don't know why you were sorry bye my my initial (laughs) instinct was well we'll go then Um, but actually the conversation then unfolded, and actually, it was really interesting. And the different people around the table had compl- had different takes on it. And their parting shot was, "We think this is really important. We really want to make sure this happens." It was like you could have started with that, <laughs> not, you know, not finished with that. Um, so, um, so actually, um, we took away um, we took away their concerns, um, which were mainly about the generation of the data set. Um, and rather than myself as a military clinician um, creating the data set myself, we use clinicians within each of the individual care teams. So although we work as a national defence mental health service, they wanted the reassurance that, that you know, it was robustly being, you know, the, the notes were being scrutinised firmly within the care teams where the care had been delivered. Um, So my nice singleton research project that wasn't going to bother anyone, that wasn't going to take too long, that was all, you know, within my experience, grew arms and legs and mushroomed, I think is probably the best way of putting it. Um, So these were the outcome measures that we came down to. Um, There's a bit of jargon there, but basically it was either you were Fully fit to go and do your military job, pretty much fit to go and do your military job, so what we call medical limited deployability, um, or not fit to go and do your military job, all right? Um, And we looked at that two years after assessment, we looked at that five years after assessment, and we also looked at it when you were discharged from care. And that sentence in itself was a massive lesson in the precision of language. <laughs> uh, because discharge was also discharged from the armed forces as well as discharge from their period of mental health treatment. Now sometimes that over- Venn diagram overlapped and sometimes it didn't. So we really had to <laughs> realise that you'd lose people along the way, they were, talking, they were like, w- well when was the discharge from your actual, was that discharge from the armed forces? or it discharge from-? right, so discharge from care from the armed forces because um, we just talked about discharge and switched it depending on which one worked best. So we looked at demographic and treatment factors and we used univariate logistic regression as, the, um, as to their association with each of the outcomes. We had those three outcomes, which was the medical cap- so medical deployability as shown by the medical category that they were in and all members of the UK armed forces are in a medical category at all times at all times. Um, so that's nice and nice and clear. There isn't anyone who we're not sure what category they're in. They're in the last one they were given until someone changes it. That's it, basically. Um, and then we did univariate logistic regression as so the association with the outcomes. Um, and then we also looked at um, at discharge factors. So we also then looked backwards, and if someone had been discharged from care, we then looked back at what. Point was at which they'd been discharged from care, if that makes sense. Alright, So we were looking at it this way, and then in the group that we knew had been discharged from the armed forces, we were then looking back at the timeline that that had happened at, if that makes sense. Because we might have missed it if it was between the two and five year point as to exactly what time that had happened. Okay, that's probably the easiest way of describing it. Where we found things were significantly Um, associated with the outcomes that we were looking at. We then did um, statistics, (laughs) 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 Um, um, but only on those things which we had already found from from a, um, a univariate logistic regression. Um, we knew that there, there was something there, there was something there that was worth looking more closely with. And what the multivariate analysis basically means is that you chase down, is it just the demographic or the treatment factor you're looking at that's making that difference? Or is it that actually everyone who has medication is that they um, has seen a doctor? So if you're looking at whether seeing a doctor impacts whether you're discharged, you know, is associated with your, whether you're at, and, having a, and having medication is associated or not, actually the two are the same thing. It isn't the medication that's, that's linked to you not being in the services at two years uh, on its own, and it's not using a doctor that's linked, you know, that's associated with you leaving the armed forces at two years, because you can't do one without without the other. Does that make sense? So we're kind of just checking that what we were looking at was the thing that was was the core, You know, was that it wasn't cause was associated, or was it something else that happened as well at the same time? Okay. Does that make sense? Because it took me a long time to get my head around. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. Um, so um, yeah, and we did that using SPSS, which is the the software which is was most familiar with. Um, uh, uh, for the, the type of research that was being conducted basically so I can't, I can't say there was any fancy you know, sort of decisions around that, that was what was available on the research laptop that we had available to us. Um, um, what I should also say is um, the study then um, was done at this point was done jointly with King's College London, the Academic Department for Defence Mental Health, um, who's still in So the approvals process which I've already spoken to, spoken about, if I knew that, I mean I had no concept this was going to be quite so involved, it has to be said. This seemed like a really simple idea, aimed at, you know, really patient focused, aimed within my you know, area of expertise. So the university process was actually really straightforward, really clear guidance, really clear guidelines and loads of support available within the, within the department as to how to do it, whether it was required what 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 was needed loads of experience the mod one as we've said i think actually was ultimately helpful i can't say i felt that all the way through (laughs) and i think a particular low point was having to calculate the sample size by hand because they didn't trust the electronic online calculator um or 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 any of them even though i said well i've checked it through like i think we it through like five in the end just in case someone was using a different calculation uh, and they were like "Nope, we want to see it we want to see it works through right, right. a level maths is now coming coming out in four um, that is not typical uh, that is not a typical experience at all um, but I have to say one of the things that that did come out of it was a hell of a network Basically, the number of people I had to have contact with, the number of people that I had to then, I had to, you know, my elevator pitch for this research was honed, finally, because of the number of people that I had to do a really quick explanation of so that I could get the very precise, you know, agreement answer, yes, no, out of them. Um, and so that, you know, yeah, the soft skills definitely helped enormously with the, with the Ethics Committee process, um, definitely. Um, it did, it did take longer than I thought but the trouble is at the beginning I didn't think I'd need it so that's a difficult thing to, it was a difficult thing to predict to be honest with you. Um, I. Um, I had a, the reason why I, I, t- I started the masters in the first place was because I had a gaping hole that was where research was supposed to be in my CV and as I was approaching the end of my psychiatry training this hole was getting more and more apparent and definitely needed something in it basically so I'd, I'd, I'd got no backgrounds, you know as an undergraduate or, or in the early days of my clinical career as a researcher at all, at all. Um, so um, I think it's safe to say that uh, the, uh, the master's definitely uh, filled that in. And the fact that I'm back here again probably <laughs> says something about that as well. Um, so for, for, you know, normal people, um, that plan early, um, but also, you know, sort of expect the unexpected sometimes, if it's just university stuff, actually, I, I, you know, I kind of felt a bit jealous. It's like, can, can the university not? Mm. <laughs> can, can they not say that it needs to go through them? And then, you know, no. um, so what did we actually find? So, um, don't, right, don't, this continues to haunt me. I spent hours, if not days, trying to get that A out of this box. It doesn't <laughs> oh. uh, like this. Uh, just, uh, it just it. It doesn't exist when you go in there. Anyway, sorry. It, it, you become obsessed about things like this when you do your dissertation, uh, like trying to get the page numbers on the on the on the right side. They bound it with the page numbers on the inside. But anyway, again, you know things that you you know this consumes your life. So. Um, So the um, DASA is the Defence Analysis and Statistics Agency, so they were the ones who did the screening of the electronic system to create the list of patients, if you like, but it wasn't a list of patients, it was a a coded list of patient identifying numbers which only exist within the electronic record-keeping system. If you don't have access to the electronic record system, the list means nothing to you at all. You can leave it on the bus, not gonna, you know, not gonna, not gonna know about it. Um, So these were identified, the three departments for community mental health, so the DCMH, were Aldershot, bryson Orton, and Portsmouth. Um, And um, there were two ways at the beginning of the period of research, which was, again, another complication. Um, The departments were asked to send in an Excel spreadsheet with the numbers of the patients that they'd seen at the beginning of the the, the 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 sort of time of the cohort the beginning of the six months but by the end of the six months it was all done by electronic searching they were in a period of transition and that in itself we had to kind of pin i was like hang on why? you know where, where are the numbers you know where are the why the numbers look so different so we had to chase that down um 19 patients couldn't find them at all no idea where they were disappeared on the, so how how they'd ended up in here. So they were probably typos within the Excel spreadsheet that was generated, probably. But we had absolutely no way of knowing, if if the number wasn't on the system, nothing that we could do, nothing we could do about that. So we ended up with 617, and there were 45 patients who didn't meet the inclusion criteria. That was usually due to inputting error, that a template had been completed about care that had happened outside of the cohort inception period, or patients had been coded as having a fresh case that hadn't actually happened, either because they didn't attend, or it was interrupted, or there was some reason why that didn't happen. Which left us with 572 patients who we knew definitely belonged within the cohort. Uh, one data collection form was just not that one patient number just didn't have a data collection form. Just didn't arrive. Don't think it got lost just didn't exist um, and on 28 forms weren't completely filled in nothing we can do no, you know nothing we can do about that unfortunately um, they were unfortunately only from two of the three sites um, but there was again because there was no information on them there's no way that we could tell whether this was skewing the the data or whether they were a specific cohort or or what have you Um, and because by this point I was very much relying on the goodwill of colleagues there was no way that I was going to be able to go back and go "Uh, would you mind you haven't haven't, haven't ticked all the boxes would you mind going back? Um, So we ended up with 543 patients on which to base the study, um, uh, base the, um, the research on. So what did we find? So I do have the numbers for this um, but there is the painful little sliver of missing, mm-hmm. very very painful for me as a researcher, a little sliver of missing data. Um, but so at two years after assessment, okay, basically the easiest way of looking at it, this is, is, to work, is to work your way round. So bearing in mind that my patients assumed that their career was disappearing into a black hole, that they were destined for essentially what they thought was Luna bin the padded cell, but you know. So medical limited deployability and medical full deployability. So this white bit isn't actually white, okay. This is the full deployability. So these people who were, dis, who at two years after they were assessed were fully fit to do their job and this, and this co-op was, a, they were doing a job, there just might be some, you know, limitations on, on what they're doing. Now that might be for example, if they're in the Navy, their ship can't go, they can't be on a ship that goes to sea, but they can be on a ship that's alongside in the UK, for example, right. Or it might be that they can't do shift work, okay? But what we don't know is whether that medical lack of deployability was actually due to their mental health. It could have been to some, due to something else. It could have been a twisted ankle, it could have been a broken arm, Okay. okay? And then in addition to that, we've got those people who are medically non-deployable. And then we've got these people who've left the armed forces but not through medical discharge. They've gone because they've applied to leave. And then we've got this one, which has left the services on medical grounds. So if we're looking for this for you know, if the purpose of this research is looking at stigma and that right, that's it, you know, the end of my career. Well, you would expect if they were correct that the non-deployable and the medically discharged would have been the majority of this graph, right? And they're certainly not. Um, and I have got the numbers, but to be honest with you, the numbers are pretty meaningless. Like the, the, the numbers are as meaningful as the, as the big wedges, essentially, on, that one, on the graph. Okay. So we are certainly not seeing... you know, So, so clinical instinct, the ANEC data, for two years, absolutely supported it. Now, we can go on and we'll probably talk for a long time about what about this left the services non medical? All right. Was that really non medical? <laughs> Was there something else going on? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that so that could have been so m- most of that will have been people who just let you know, submitted their notice and left. Some may have failed drugs tests, some may have been thrown out on disciplinary grounds, but that is never a huge number of people in the armed forces every every year, and is probably in the region of the miss- of, of the missing one, if we looked at the whole armed forces, let alone within this cohort. So at five years, so the left, the services not medical has looked even, is even bigger. Now one of the big flaws of this is we don't know what, you, what the so called natural wastage would you would expect in, you know, what, what's the turnover. If you like, of personnel, how many how many of these people would you expect to have left the armed forces and having an assessment in a military mental health, uh, you know, uh, clinic is completely incidental. Okay. Um, um. But you can see there that the wedge of full deployability and limited deployability is starting to get very small um, at five years after assessment. But actually, these two still aren't looking massive. Right, people have left, but again, they've not left because they've been medically discharged, or be, or they're not hanging around, not able to do their, not able to do their job. You know, essentially under threat of this potentially, depending on what their, you know, what their skills, their expertise, and what they're, you know, what they're doing is. But this one, which is the point of discharge from care, and bear in mind again, this graph includes non-mental health reasons including non-mental health reasons, um, but this is at the point that we discharge them. Okay, this is the point at which they're discharged from clinical care. Discharge from the is discharge from clinical care. So actually, we've got full deployability, limited deployability. You've got a better chance of being in one of those two categories than you have in the others. Okay, and that in itself. Challenges the stigma from the get go, okay. and this has actually been essentially the most useful, the, mo- the, you know, the, the, the most um, satisfying, for want of a better word, statistic um, that we found. Um, we did also. Do you remember I said we looked at how long did that take? So we looked at two years and we looked at five years, but that's a nice kind of you know individual slice. So how long did it take? Um, and again, it pains me the fact that I, because it's up to 2,000, the naught to 200 bit, which is where it was, I never found a way of getting the computer to do this, because it's done with an SPSS. Um, so, but what you've basically got there is a very bad box and whisker plot, okay? Um, where um, you've got the median, the most common time between assi- assessments um, and discharge from care, is 83 days for everybody. If you're deployable at discharge, it's slightly shorter than, it's shorter than that, 71 days. And if it, you're not deployable at discharge, it's slightly longer, okay? All right. um, maximum time in care was 1,728 days. We think that's probably a bad unfortunately. But it is possible, at the time, that was possible. Since then and towards the end of the time that the cohort was, was followed up, there are now caps in the amount of time that patients are, um, are have care within military mental health services before discharge is considered, but that wasn't the case at the time, there was no hard stop, if you like, and it's still not a hard fast, hard and fast rule now, but there is more, there's greater scrutiny of people who need that level of care to continue their employment, which sounds really harsh but also, both as an employer, but also in terms of the job that you want people to do. If people are needing long-term mental health care, that's not to say they don't need help, you know, they get better and then they need it again. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about long-term mental health care, continuing need for that support. You have to question then whether their employment's right and whether they are best, whether the individual is best served by continuing employment. Right. Um, and the, so we did that another way, um, and we did it as a survival function. Um, and basically, what you can see, so MFD is medically fully deployable, and instinctively, this graph does look like vaguely what you'd think. So basically, if you're going to be medically fully deployable when you you leave care. You're probably going to be in care for a shorter amount of time. The, the the graph here, which is your survival in treatment, as in the time you spend in treatment before you're discharged, you're going to lead, you're going to need less care, or at least a, a shorter length of treatment, compared to those who have got, you know, who are left, who don't come out of treatment. Sorry, I just don't. So discharge from care. I don't know how it works in the military, but. Like, you can be discharged for any number of reasons. Like, you can just, if you, if you just never come back for, like, a therapeutic session, you're discharged after, like, three phone calls of, like, you haven't come back. Yeah. So you're discharged. Yeah. But I don't know. Is that the same in the military? Like, does discharge from care mean that therapeutic services were terminated because people had, recovered, like, had, like, reduced symptoms and are now well? So the fact that some of them are discharged medically non-deployable tells you that no, some people will still still have medical problems when they're discharged from care. The military do not compel people into mental health treatment. They can't, you can't be ordered, to. it used to be you could be ordered to attend your appointment, but you couldn't be ordered to do anything other than say to the receptionist, I'm here. Okay? <laughs> that used to be the case. Once you've done that, you would reported to your place of duty, And, 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 you know, that you've done, uh, but if you didn't do that, you could be disciplined for not turning up and going on here. That, even that now, is no longer the case. You can't even be ordered to rock up to attend the appointment for mental health care now. Mm -hmm. You are only there because you want care. You have consented to care, and you can withdraw that consent at any time. Mm -hmm. And we do have patients who just go, don't believe a jot of it. This isn't helping to me. Bye-bye. I'm off you know, your snake or salesman, this is a load of rubbish, It's a load of nonsense. Or for people whose stigma levels are so high, all right, they're like, do you know what? I'm fine now. You know, they have their assessment, you know, the wife's off my back. I'm only here because she's made me come here. I'm fine. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, and, you know, we cannot compel them into, tri- you know, and we will not compel them into treatment. But it doesn't get you a medically fully deployable, medical category because if we're concerned that your mental health is impacting on your ability to do your job we don't need your consent to restrict your duties to to stop you potentially causing a harm to yourself but also to the other people who depend on you so if you want to be to have that ticket saying i'm fully deployable you've got to turn off you're, you uh, okay? It's not impossible, <laughs> but you are unlikely to be given a clean bull of health mm. by a non-mental health professional if you haven't spoken to the mental health yeah. professional they referred you to, basically, who, you know, who, you know, who they thought you probably needed the care of, or some, some care of. Okay. Um, um and, I, and, and it's, you know, I certainly, you know, sometimes we just have, sometimes it's, it's very interesting because clinicians want to help patients. You know, they don't like to know that there is someone who could benefit from their care who is choosing not to accept it. Um, and but sometimes that is the right thing to do because it's the wrong time for the patient, particularly when you've got um, conditions such as PTSD that where avoidance is one of the cardinal symptoms of PTSD. They will do anything to not have to go and confront the reason why they've had PTSD in the first place. Um, and it's part of the illness, and so we have to recognise that. But also as responsible employers and as working for an organisation as well, and dare I say as an ethically practising doctor as well, you know, I have to do the best for my patient, and sometimes the best for my patient isn't to agree that they can go back to the war zone. You know, sometimes that isn't the, you know, that isn't the case. Um, and, it's already, and then that's where the skill of my job comes in terms of reconciling patients' expectations, organisational expectations, and um, the care you know, and delivering care because my duties of a doctor trump my military duties. Basically, I report to the GMC first, whether the navy, you know, and that is that's very clear that the navy recognises that. Um, so. Um, so yes, that's just another way of looking at it, and essentially that was it was a way to try and make that graph look a bit clearer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure it does, but that was a, that was the effort. I think it does. <laughs> it does. But what's also interesting, I think, is these two are pretty entwined. Mm-hmm. That it's very different. You'd be very hard pressed to sort of look at to to you know the plateau doesn't look much doesn't look much different there. Um, so any questions on the results? I'm not sure I've got much s- more to say about it. To be so, what came next? So, for the research, um, this um, so having having done the research, um, it was uh, it was presented internally within the military, and was actually incorporated into um, non-patient information materials about both seeking care, but also around um, deep de-stigmatising mental health, um, including the um, the War Navy um, commanding officer's guide for for mental health. So it immediately, as soon as it was done, it hit the ground running. It did what it was supposed to do. Um, which is very gratifying, and particularly when you've been through such a convoluted um, research process, to have it stuck (laughs) would have been quite painful, to be brutally honest with you. This was done with patients in mind and to have felt that it wasn't there. And I have to say that the knowledge into action module was very, very helpful in terms of being able to look at the engagement and to look at how that research could be disseminated disseminated for the purpose that it was intended. Um, intended to um, and I've still got an email from one of my uh, uh, one of my nursing colleagues who basically emailed me to say I've just had a patient who saw the publication and is here because it changed their mind Which, you, that's it that's it you're done then <laughs> like you know all those years of blood sweat and tears um, then become you know really do become um, become worth it and it what you know and it was It was a slog. (laughs) It was a slog. Um, I think the particular particular low point was uh, being given a direct order uh, that I would not be finishing my ambassadors on time. Um, I'd had a patient suicide. And I was like, I've got to get my dissertation in. And and Claire literally was like, no, you need, you need, um, um, you, you know, you've got other things to do. You've got other things that you need to concentrate on. Give it, give it. Well, we thought another term. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, the admin process meant, although we got it in in a term, it, it took a bit. It took yeah. a bit longer, but anyway. Um, so that's um, fine. I, I, I'd had I'd had a baby in that time anyway, so my my attention had then gone even further away from my research. Um, but um, yeah, it's certainly. Um, but for me, I, I you know I had no concept. Whatsoever, when I was in the, you know, uh, this, you know, this module now, um, all those years ago, (laughs) Um, um, what I would be able to produce, the difference that that in itself could potentially make for patients, but also then sort of what came, what came next for me. So I qualified as a consultant psychiatrist in February, uh, 2017. Um, I passed my Armed Forces Consultory Advisory Board in March, which I probably wouldn't have done without the research. You pl- know, I probably wouldn't have passed the board without the research. You know, that I could show that I'd produced. Um, I produced, and then had my son the following month. <laughs> tick, tick, tick. Um, so, um, and then after after some maternity leave, um, came back as a, a sort of came back from maternity leave in into a military job. Um, and within six months, I was consultant advisor in psychiatry for the war, maybe. Um, so, which was a bit of a shocker to <laughs> <laughs> everyone, including me. Um, I, from that point, okay, we, uh, we've completely, not completely changed, but we've very much put deployed um, mm. mental health treatment on a front foot. Because we could use, you know, numbers like this to con- to say to people, look, what you've th- you've got to you've got to think about what you think what you think. Right. Um, and um, you uh, may or may not have seen the uh, documentary on HS Queen Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. So I had a mental health team on board. Uh, and the chaplain, unfortunately, took his life doing that. Was not under the care, <laughs> um, but there was mental health and team embedded, embedded within that, um, within that deployment, um, um, and um, you know able to look after um, the, 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 um, the personnel out there. And that is something that, that again. My research you know, the, the, the skills that I learned, the, the um, you know, so both in the study design, in the, the, the teaching evidence-based healthcare module that I did as well, um, and the knowledge into action, um, all meant that we could then really, as a Royal Navy Mental Health Service, set things set things up um, very much on the front foot um, so that we were getting mental healthcare where it was needed, but we could do it from an evidence base. we could show where, you know, where that was coming from. Um, which has also then enabled me to come back here to Oxford again which never ever thought um, uh, uh, I would never ever thought I would do um, and I'm looking at um, deployed um, so, uh, deployed mental health support and research in the maritime space and that's so I'm not actually here. Cl- I'm not actually here to do clinical research. I'm here to look at policy and strategy. So this has enabled me to then build on that um, to to um, hopefully go on. Certainly with my, my um, psychiatric career and hopefully my military career as well. So it's been, you know, as I say, looking back, I cannot believe you know where I am now from where I started. Um, that's it. Thank you very much.